Welcome to Crafty Sourcer. If you're looking for a raw, unfiltered podcast on all things sourcing in APAC, you've come to the right place. Grab a coffee or wine and join your host and other guests as we dive deep into the complex and ever-evolving world of sourcing, keeping you informed on insights, tools, and even at times, a healthy sourcing debate or two. Now, here's your host, Denise Pereira from Kaleidosource. Settle in and let's get crafty. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Crafty Saucer. Our guest today is Fern Sito. Fern is an executive search expert with a decade of diverse industry experience, and she's currently shaping the future of exec talent at Telstra. She's also an advocate for DEI and passionate about jigsaw puzzles and obviously her dog as well. So let's get into it and let's get crafty. Fern, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Denise. Thank you. So fun. let's dive right in. You've carved a bit of a unique path in the world of executive search and then going into more of an internal tier role. For those that don't know you, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what sparked your passion for sourcing? Yeah, sure. So keen listeners may be able to tell from my accent that I'm not Australian by by heritage. Um, I grew up in New Zealand. I was My parents are Malaysian Chinese and I was brought up in Auckland. I've lived in Melbourne for about six years and I've worked in exec search for what you so alarmingly pointed out uh, is a decade. <laughs> so like most people who work in search and recruitment, it's not really something that I sought out. It's uh, something that you sort of I fell into really. I actually have a law degree and um, while I was studying I worked part-time in a smallish executive search firm in Auckland. After graduating I took a job working in the high court in Auckland which deals with pretty serious criminal matters. Uh, I'd always been more interested in criminal law than commercial. Unfortunately that job was really boring and the environment was really toxic so I quit after about six months and then I thought oh god what do I do now? So I thought a good person to talk to about my career would be someone who worked in executive search. So I called my old boss at the place that I had been working part time. And she suggested that I come and join her team full time as a researcher. So that's how I ended up getting my start. I like how you, when you mentioned about falling into recruitment, and it's, it's really interesting because majority of TA folks have fallen into it. Yeah, I only absolutely. know one person in my life who did an engineering degree. And she, and she deliberately chose going into recruitment. She said that was the career path she wanted to take. Wow. And I remember when she mentioned that, I was like, oh, my God, hats off. You're probably the first and probably maybe the last person I'll mm. ever know that will go directly into recruitment versus choosing something else and versus falling into it as. Yeah, thanks. 100%. <laughs> but thanks so much for sharing that. As Let's talk a little about your the not just the transition side, but around sourcing as as a value add to any business. Now, as you mentioned, you transitioned from research into a pure tier role. I'd imagine there are some subtle differences here and there. Sourcing can mean different things to different people. Mm. In your view, what does sourcing mean to you, and how do you think it adds value to an organization? Yeah. So, look, sourcing to me, I think the reason that my brain quite likes it is because I like problem solving. And sourcing is a little bit like cracking a code. So taking a brief and um, understanding the right combination of factors and then searching through someone's background and sort of finding that click moment where you realize, oh, actually, 
they fit this formula. They're the kind of the, the, the key to this door. Um, that's a little bit like cracking a code for me. And, and I also enjoy the aspect where I can bring that sort of cracking code moment to a candidate as well. So often I'll find a candidate who might be a bit of a left field contender based on their background for a particular role. But I see something in there. I see some potential. I see some kind of aptitude to, to adapt into a different role. And I'll approach them with the role and they, they'll say something like, I've never really thought about this. But, you know, now that you talk to me about it. Sounds kind of interesting. And some of the best appointments I've made have been have been through those sorts of people. And in terms of how it brings value to an organization, it's like a tailored suit versus something you just pull off the rack at Tarakash. It's like <laughs> it's a it's a tailored structured solution rather than post and hope uh, or, or relying on the luck of the draw. It also, I think, is a good way to navigate a more challenging market because obviously if you just post and hope you're dependent on your subject to rather what else is happening in the market at the time whereas if you've got people proactively out there sourcing you know that that's a much more refined and focused approach deliberate approach rather than just dealing with whatever comes in and if you consider the impact that a bad hire can have on an organization culture and morale disruption, financial consequences, you know, in the absolute worst case scenario, a really bad separation with legal consequences that blow up in your face. Uh, proactively matching candidates to roles, particularly high stakes roles, it's, it's a bit of a no-brainer. So Fern, you make an interesting point around how we all know sourcing's definitely evolved. And you said it's like cracking the code. And you said even now, more important than ever, sourcing is now necessary and it's not just as seen as do we get this do we get a source on team or do we not i think it's become more increasingly important to have that going into 2024 mm. even though it's it's becoming less of a candidate market i still feel it's still a candidate market depending on where who you're trying to attract at the mm -hmm. same time mm -hmm. and that's where sourcing gives you that edge and whether you're a sourcer whether you're a recruiter as long as you're part of the ta function ta strategy we still have a role of influence Mm. Right. So mm -hmm. I like the point that you made over there. Now, let's talk a little about now we talk about your transition. So yeah, sure. I'd imagine the transition from an academic setting to more of the corporate world can be a significant shift. Is there or could you share with us what that journey was like for yourself? And then what were some of maybe the challenges and surprises that you encountered along the way? Yeah, so in terms of adjusting, when I actually first started working in executive search in New Zealand, New Zealand is such a small market. So most of the work I was doing was fairly general management based. Because New Zealand's such a small market, executive level candidates there really need to be more of a Swiss army knife type of candidate. Lots of different skills than, than in larger markets where, you know, people have the ability to really specialize. But I realized what I really liked about the roles that I was doing is when I found something that was really highly technical. So for a while, um, at the first search firm I worked for, we were doing a lot of hiring for a superannuation fund that required really um, specific investment banking disciplines. Other times I'd have really specific legal disciplines that I'd have to hire. So that sort of set me down the path to a more academic deep dive sort of approach. And then when I joined Odges, I was working primarily in the higher education practice. So that's working with candidates who are really deep experts in their fields, pairing that with having to maintain that really good general executive skill set in terms of communication, management, team leadership, etc. And I think, again, something that I really liked about that world is that there are certain metrics 
in academia that are markers of success and they're very clear. So you know whether you're looking for an associate professor or a professor or a head of department, you can look at something at what something is called their H index, which is the number that is based on the impact of the research that they've had in their particular field. So you would expect a senior level professor to have an H index of X amount. And if you were looking at a candidate and they weren't quite reaching that level, then you'd say, okay, they're probably not quite right. I can move on. And when you're dealing with academia and also in government, these clients tend to really give you the time to get to know your subject and to understand what good looks like. The corporate world is a lot faster paced and uh, the markers of, of expertise and of success really aren't as clear and they really differ from field to field. So obviously where I work now, Telstra, we're a massive organization. And so the right candidate in say corporate treasury looks very different from the right candidate in customer experience. And again, would look very different from the right candidate running field operations. So I have had to get comfortable with my discomfort around not having all the information. Um, I've had to get comfortable with making decisions more quickly and with less information than I would ideally like. You know, I, I cling to data points as a safety blanket. So having to make decisions with less data and more quickly is a little scary for me still. But overall, you know, I think I wanted to challenge myself by coming into a corporate environment. And um, I think I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I'm enjoying the possibilities. I reckon with your background in research and now sort of moving into exec, it would have given you a lot of structure because I, knowing <laughs> what I know of you, you know, you're pretty analytical, you're all about problem solving. So couple that with sourcing as well, some sourcing ammunition, that would give you heaps of structure. So when you yeah. go and you do your intake meeting or discovery session with your hiring manager, you know exactly, boom, 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 these are the steps that I'm going to have to take to 100%. get the maximum outcome. Yeah, mm -hmm. nice. I've never done, I don't come from a research background. So traditionally, you know, resources or resources come mm. from a research background. But mm. I'm seeing a lot more people who are going into sourcing now. They're like recruiters who've now sort of niched their way in, into sourcing. Yeah. yeah. One question, and I think it's really good to sort of tie into a little about what you were saying is now when we sort of look at what the market's been like. It's been a shit mm. show. No doubt about that. <laughs> yes. It's been a yep. shit show for TA specifically. Mm. With the market trends, with the economic conditions, industry-specific challenges, they don't only have an impact on your search, but I think they actually have more of an impact on the attraction part of the process, yeah. right? Yeah. With the exec search, because I'd imagine it's a lot more different, slightly difficult in its own right, because a process can take anywhere from three to six months for an outcome to even happen. Yep. How do you adapt to those external factors that you possibly don't even have control over to rope in that right talent? And what I mean by that is maybe if you could share some successful strategies or best practices for exec search folks or anyone who's looking to hire or attract people at that level. Yeah, and you're right about the market being a real shit show. Uh, and I think even in the, in the last couple of years, uh, trends have really, really changed in terms of executives. We always say coming home to Australia because Australia is a funny market in that, especially somewhere like Telstra, where we have some extremely technical skill sets that we need. It's very hard to draw people here from overseas unless they have a connection to here. So, you know, their their spouse is Australian. They've studied here. You know, they were assigned here for a year while well, they were a consultant and really loved it. So it's in terms of trying to attract those candidates here, you need to do a little more legwork 
and trying to find that connection. There's a couple of really gnarly looking Boolean search strings that I use <laughs> drawing on my university and academia search days where I can rattle off the names of, you know, the top 20 to 30 universities in Australia off the top of my head. And I had that all in a Boolean search string and I'll plug that into whatever I'm doing to see if I can find that connection. And often you simply can't tell from a profile. So we're often, um, you know, if we find a well-connected Australia or New Zealand emigre overseas who's, you know, worked in the US or Europe for a really long time, you find them and you hold on to them and you go back and you prod them again and again. <laughs> Every time you have a role in that space, it's like, say, you don't know anybody who'd be interested in uh, coming to Australia for this kind of thing, do you? So in terms of, yeah, attracting those or finding those people, you've got to have a long memory and remember who is um, a helpful source. In terms of attracting people, you really got to know your EVP. I think particularly on the exec search side of the fence, you know, clients will come to search firms when they have a role that's hard to fill. And that can be hard to fill for a number of reasons. It can be because it's an extremely technical skill set that doesn't exist here. It could be uh, reputational issues. You know, you think about the big four banks in the last few years, a lot of them having Royal Commission remediation undertakings that they have to fulfill. You need to understand how to position a client that might have a, a challenging reputation or, um, you know, what is wanting to build a practice from scratch where they have no previous uh, record in doing so. And understand how to connect that to specific candidates. Some candidates love a fixer-upper. I, I will often tell candidates, you know, if I'm working for a client or in a particular area of the business that's doing really well, I'll say this isn't a burn it down and start again type of project. If that's the kind of thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, it's probably not the right role for you. Um, and other candidates, you know, really like to be that safe pair of hands and like to be the BAU person and be able to provide stability for a team. So I guess that's the other aspect of what I do is I think because I've been working in exec search from so early in my career, I'm really not intimidated by anyone's title. <laughs> At the end of the day, all your candidates are just people, even if they're, they're a chief something, something or other. I have a fairly informal interviewing style and I always spend the first few minutes of the conversation just trying to connect with them as a fellow human. You know, if I see a dog bed in the background, I'll ask them about their dog. I had a 10, 15 conversa minute conversation with a tech executive about his dogs and all the trouble that they'd caused around the backyard and with the neighbors. And that can really connect you with them and they, they, they feel more comfortable to be honest with you. And I think with a lot of candidates, they develop a real sort of corporate armor, a sort of persona where they feel like they have to be a certain way. And I try and get underneath that a little bit and just try and get to know them. The other thing that I think is quite important to remember is that Certain groups of candidates can get approached very frequently and can get very jaded about the process. So you think about women in STEM, right? Every single tech role that anyone will do, they'll always say, oh, I would love a woman in this role. And some candidates, you know, they've, uh, women in tech are extremely cognizant of this. Every woman in tech is so smart and they know what the market is doing and what the market wants. And some candidates, I've had some candidates straight up ask me if they're just making up the numbers as a diversity hire, because not only do they know that everyone out there is looking for women in tech or women in STEM, they know about, you know, potential glass cliffs and they know that, yes, they might get into the room, but are they going to be supported when they get in there? So you need to really know your EVP and how your client or your organization is going to support these candidates because those are, they're going to ask you the hard questions because they're getting approached every day and you need to be able to break through and connect with them and make sure that they don't you know ignore your particular LinkedIn message.
You make two points from what you've just said that stood out to me. One is the EVP. Mm. And I've seen a lot of companies sort of focus a lot more on the front part, but EVP is also tied into the back end. So you got to fix your house before you start going out and and Correct. trying new things, right? So yep. I feel like not a lot, but some companies need to really fix the processes behind the scenes to actually go mm. and create a compelling EVP. Your yep. second one was about, you know, connecting with people. And I feel like sometimes us being in TA, we go into the hardcore cell. Whereas yeah. if you actually realize connection is probably the easiest thing that builds a lot more trust. Yeah. And to your point about talking about dogs, I think, you know, when you talk <laughs> about food, dogs, these are common things that people automatically get drawn to. Correct. I had a candidate last year and his dog had gone into surgery. I've got two Australian bulldogs. And even though we didn't continue the process, we stayed in touch through text messaging. And I was mm. constantly sending pictures of my dog saying, hey, you know what? Well, my dogs are sending good vibes to your dogs. And a month later, an opportunity came up in the company that I was working in. Mm. And we took him through the process and he got hired by the customer. Fantastic. So these these connections, not and I think sometimes we get so fixated on we need to make this higher now, but people don't realize, and this sort of ties into pipeline engagement, pipeline management, that if not now, it, it will happen, but you have yeah. to create that connection. The sell yep. will happen through that connection, but it needs to be a lot more genuine yeah. besides the whole, we need to hire someone right now. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the search firms I worked at was really uh, strong on, you know, your candidates will become your clients. If you stay close to a candidate, make sure that they have a great first 100 days in the role and that even if, you know, things don't work out for them in that particular organization, that you maintain a really great relationship, then that's that's gold. That that That's your reputation. That's your network. That's someone you can call on again as a client or a candidate further down the line. So absolutely, you've got to make that human connection. For just one last question from me, and I was just thinking about this as we were talking. Mm. Exec search. Mm. It's a slightly different breed of when you do sourcing in general. <laughs> mm-hmm. What do you think, like what sort of attributes would someone need or should have Let's see if they want to go down that path of being more of an exec source or exec searcher. I think the first thing that comes to mind is actually, I feel like people from sort of mixed cultural backgrounds or immigrant backgrounds might have a slight edge, to be honest, because you really have to be able to code switch and you really have to be able to tailor your comms and your um, the style, and the way that you present to the, the right sort of audience. So again, you know, if I, if I go back to the sort of corporate treasury versus customer experience role, a lot of people who, you know, will come out of investment banking and corporate treasury, they're very time poor. So they want a very neat concise brief they, they don't want to necessarily yarn with you for 15 minutes about their cats and dogs and you have to know you have to be able to read that 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 vibe very quickly and understand how this person wants to communicate and often you won't you won't be able to gauge that until you're in the conversation and you have to make those decisions on the spot so I think without sort of losing who you are in terms of your core being able to code switch and understand um, different communication styles for for different sort of client sets and candidate sets that that's really important and that you know translates to your written comms as well again you don't necessarily want to be writing a thousand word approach email and just make sure you're really clear in that comm so i've had a number of people who i've approached as sources not read my comms correctly and say, oh, I'm not interested in this role. It's way too junior for me. And, and and I have to sort of go back and gently say, I know you're not 
going to be interested in this role. And that's why I'm asking you if you can recommend people for this role, because I can understand that you're clearly far too senior for it. So clarity around your comms, being able to code switch. And I think just that kind of passion for, for problem solving and like that, like cracking a code, because it is, it is really like, like solving a puzzle. And when you get that kind of feedback from from the client that you know this is this is the right fit, that's that's very satisfying. So just persistence, I think, but balance that with the kind of environment that you're in. Obviously, I've had to adapt from somewhere where I can afford to take my time and really deep dive into something to somewhere where I've had to you know move a lot more quickly and not be able to get as deep into subject matter as I would ideally like, and that would give me a certain level of comfort. So you you've got to balance that real desire to solve a, a puzzle with you know making sure that you're committing the right amount of time and resources for, for your particular context. That's actually really valuable advice, Aram. And I think, you know, irrespective of what titles we have within the TA realm, we all are in a position to change someone's life. And we can do it in a way where, you know, it's a win-win for everybody without it being me versus them kind of situation. Fun. this was it. So thank you so much for coming on to the Crafty Sourcer podcast and sharing your valuable insights on exec search and your journey into exec search and beyond. So thank you so much, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and stay crafty. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. And we'll be back next week with another exciting episode. If you found this valuable, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. That helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, happy sourcing and stay crafty. Until next time.